prison gangs, a phenomenon found all over the world, but one that manifests with interesting and particular features in different contexts. Today's guest asks, how do prisoners govern in mass incarceration settings in Latin America, and also in particular contexts of women's prisons and gay and transgender units? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Dr. David Scarbeck is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and the Political Theory Project at Brown University. He is the author of The Social Order of the Underworld, Oxford 2014, which won the APSA's William Riker Award for Best Book in Political Economy and the Outstanding Book Award from the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime. His new book, out this summer 2020, is called The Puzzle of Prison Order, why life behind bars varies around the world. And I'm very happy to say Dr. David Scarbeck joins me today. So welcome to Justice Focus. Oh, happy to be here. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks, to, thanks uh, for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book. Um, but where, how are things right now? Where are you in the world at the moment? And how are you adjusting to these new conditions? Well, uh, I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, on the east coast of the United States. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I went from having a sort of nice office on campus to um, clustered around the kitchen table and, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, too, yeah. you know, battling my cat for couch space to uh, try to <laughs> squeeze a few words of writing in. Well, let's, 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 uh, let's jump straight into it. I, um, I mean, obviously, I want to ask you about prison gangs and, and prison order, but I believe your your degrees are actually in economics rather than criminology. So, how do do you class yourself as an economist still, or are you now uh, in the criminology world? I, I refer to myself as a, a as a political economist. So okay. I use many economic theories, and I'm interested in questions about institutions and institutional change. And mm. there's a lot of overlap between political science and economics in that arena. And to a lesser extent, overlap with uh, criminology. So in a sense, I'm trying to bring a sort of institutional focus to questions and topics studied in criminology. Okay, great. And I guess people don't necessarily associate economics or even political theory necessarily with with gangs. So how did you how do you first get interested in, in gangs and in prisons? Well, I've long had um, an interest and concern in uh, American mass incarceration and the carceral state. And that's been mm. sort of on my radar since I was in college. And I grew up in a part of the Bay Area in California where both street gangs and prison gangs were sort of a common enough um, thing uh, to be newsworthy that it didn't take a lot to sort of become aware of that. So uh, mm. when I went to school, when I went to grad school, um, we started studying uh, political institutions. And in particular, I took a class um, using economic tools to understand political constitutions, right? So um, why mm. do countries uh, create constitutions in the way that they do? What is their purpose? Why are some more effective than others? 
And in that class, as usual, you know, I had to write a paper. And so um, I was aware that there was a prison gang with a pretty extensive written constitution with articles and sections, statements of purpose, a mission. And I wanted to know if the economic models could help explain that sort of criminal constitution. And so that was the first sort of scholarly academic um, intervention into gangs. And um, it basically raised the question of why do gangs have constitutions? And I sort of gave an, an argument or answer to that, but it raised additional questions, which is uh, why do gangs exist in the first place? And what are the consequences um, of the formation and operation of gangs? And so I, it, it, you know, mm. it's not like I set out a 10-year research plan. It's just a matter of uh, following interesting questions and being yeah. curious about sort of what comes next and what else. Yeah. Oh, great. And uh, yeah, following that train of thought, I guess, as you mentioned, gangs and prisons in the news a lot. They're also in films and TV a lot. And so I wanted to ask you about your impressions of what we see in, in film and TV and how much they relate relate to the to the realities that you've seen and read about and researched about um, in your work leading up to your first book, but then obviously um, if you work specifically in the Californian prisons. There. I, I think there's a, a wide range. Um, some shows just strike me as very, um, uh, very far different from my experience in researching prisons. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the few episodes of Oz that I saw just, just didn't seem to comport very well. Um, other shows that I think fit a lot better with, with my sort of understanding, uh, there's a new movie called Shot Caller uh, about the California prison okay. system. And that um, struck me as, as being, um, with a few exceptions, um, you know, pretty realistic. Um, I touched mm. base with a few of my um, um, subjects, uh, respondents uh, from my first book. And they, mm. they said that, with, again, with a few exceptions, yeah, that, that seemed pretty realistic. Uh, so it ranges yeah. from wildly uh, out of touch with reality to fairly decent representations. And maybe even more importantly, um, you know, I might recommend uh, the podcast Ear Hustle, which is okay. produced um, by um, um, members of the outside world and um, residents at San Quentin Prison. And it is right. an incredible podcast that will make you laugh. It will make you cry. It is not sensational. It is realistic. And it's just a phenomenal mm. podcast that I think better than any of those sort of fictional representations gives you a sense about mm. um, just about every facet of uh, life at San Quentin in the California prison system. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because I think also, I mean, a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's art, it's, it's entertainment, and it focuses on the explosive kind of, imaginings that could go on in prisons but uh, a lot of people that work in in it and have spent time in prison kind of often mention the monotony and the you know that the slowness of of a lot of everyday which goes against um sort of ideas about uh, violent gangs and things in yeah prison. So uh, that's you, absolutely right i mean and i remember one person mm. uh you know in particular he said prison is boring it is boring to be yeah. in prison and boring doesn't yeah. make for good TV or good movies. So naturally yeah. there's going to be some yeah. bias in sort of how, you know, life in prison is depicted. Yeah, sure. And actually, I, I don't know if you ever watched, there's a old British TV program called Porridge. I haven't seen it. Um, with, oh, it's um, a Ronnie Barker is a kind of a, a famous British 
comedian and an actor and yeah i mean it's I don't know if it's on TV anymore, but it, it was a much more slow paced sort of in a few people's cells. And there was a little bit of, you know, uh, joking between the prisoners and the staff, but it was all fairly slow paced. And um, yeah, a, a lot of people that I've worked with in prisons will say that's that's pretty much the closest oh, that's um, interesting. I'll to the reality. Check it out. But um, yeah, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll see if I can dig out a link for you. Um, but OK. And I mean, OK, we've, we've said the, the word gangs a lot already. And you've written a whole book on on um, sort of prison governance and, and gangs in California. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the gang system works in in your book in the social order of the underworld. Yeah. And and again, we have in the media a specific idea about what those gangs look like and how they're divided. And so yeah, it'd be great to know whether those are like reality or not as well. Sure. I mean, I think prison gangs in many ways are um, depicted as being inherently violent and disruptive actors within correction settings. And what Mm. I found in my book is that while there's a grain of truth to that, it's not the sort of core or most effective, productive way to understand them. So in the Mm. California prison system today, the prison gangs sort of have a dominant influence on the everyday life of prisoners and in the daily operations of prisons. Um, Mm. In the book, I describe the system of gangs as a community responsibility system. This is a concept that's used in uh, the political economy literature. And it basically means that everyone in prison in California has to affiliate with some group. And these gangs tend Mm. to be the sort of most important such groups, but they're not the only one. But everyone has to be a part of a group. And within a group, each member of the group is responsible for every other member's actions and obligations. And so what that means Mm. is that if I'm in a group, I incur a debt to a member of another group, not only am I responsible to repay it, but everyone in my group is sort of obligated to be responsible for it as well. And so in California today, you know, say, say I, uh, you know, I was a member of a group that owed a drug debt to another gang. The way that that problem would be resolved is that the sort of gang leader, the shot caller from the other group would talk to the leader of my group and raise the issue. And the mm-hmm. gang would either, you know, force me to get funds from friends and family to pay it off. They may have the resources to pay it off. Um, I might have to do work for the other group to resolve the debt. Or I might be assaulted by my gang to the severity Mm. that it satisfies that a message was sent uh, from the perspective of the other gang. And so the Mm. gang sort of use this internal pressure to facilitate social and economic interactions across groups. And so that's, that's the sort of nature of a community responsibility system. And they have rules, extensive rules about who you can interact with, who you can sell with, who you can share a meal with who you can do, uh, you know, sort of some sort of economic exchange with. And the gangs, for the most part, are the primary regulators or governance uh, source for those types of interactions. So it sounds like gangs are some kind of social bureaucracy, which is way more boring than the, the stuff we see in the papers about the violence. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they're, they're, they're almost, it's, it's almost like a clan-based social order. And, mm. and they do a lot to try to reduce violence and large-scale disruptions. 
So uh, mm. I argue in my book that um, these gangs often profit extensively from bringing in contraband like illicit drugs and tobacco. And they mm. profit from both selling it, but also taxing the markets in which these sales take place. And a right. sort of unintended consequence of that is that if you disrupt prison life, say there was a riot or a serious act of violence or, or a murder, and the prison goes mm. into lockdown, then those markets aren't operating and the gangs aren't earning. Yeah. So in a sort of yeah. weird switch, the sort of profit motive leads gangs to try to maintain mm. stability to reduce large-scale disruptions. Yeah. So yeah, a kind of a, a capitalist um, imperative to, to keep going. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I know that you talk about sort of a, a prisoner's code in your book as well and um, how p people want to, prisoners want to attract the attention of the officers and the actual authorities as, as little as possible. So I wondered if you wanted to mention something about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean... You know, in California, you know, today, but also going back, you know, you know, fairly far back in history, prisoners have um, uh, a code. They have a set of beliefs about what is appropriate action and what's inappropriate action. And many of these things are very reasonable. You know, don't snitch on other prisoners. Don't attract the attention of correctional staff. Um, don't mm. steal. Don't lie. Pay your debts back. Don't be weak. Don't complain. Yeah. And this core set of sort of values, I guess you might call it, um, I mean, that's been mm. constant in California um, as far back as I sort of, as we have sort of evidence of the social order. And so what I mm. argue in the book is that the way that prisoners enforce those values has changed dramatically, but the values have always been there. So gangs haven't mm. always existed in California. The California prison system was in operation for more than 100 years and there were no groups like these prison gangs. There wasn't a system like I just described. So before yeah. gangs existed, they relied on the, the convict code or the prisoner's code. And it was just these, it was this individual-based system where your reputation and standing determine whether you were respected and supported mm -hmm. or whether you were disrespected and seen as a possible subject of victimization. So the more that you adhered to the convict code, the higher your standing the greater access to resources, more support from your peers. The more you deviated mm. from that code, the less people wanted to associate with you and provide you material yeah. or social support. And this wasn't a, a mutual responsibility system like the way gangs work. It was individual-based. An individual either um, conforms to the values or not. And an individual chooses to mm. punish violations or not. And so this switch yeah. from the sort of informal system based on norms and individual reputations to structures of gangs and gang uh, reputation is sort of a dramatic change to the way that life in prison uh, operated in California. And would you say that developed with the increasing incarceration where your reputation couldn't possibly travel to you know, an ever-increasing number. Of yeah, that, that's exactly right. I argue that the change in the demographics of whom a person was incarcerated with mattered tremendously. So, the size mm -hmm. of the total prison population starts to increase. The size of individual prisons increases. There's an increase in people who have never been to the prison before and therefore may not know the codes very effectively. 
There's a change mm-hmm. in the ethnic and racial composition of prisoners to become more diverse and potentially to have more disagreement of what constitutes adherence to or deviance from the convict code. And so in my book, I use sort of historical and qualitative evidence to argue that in the late 1950s and 1960s, when these um, population spikes are really starting to increase, um, we know from people who were incarcerated or worked in prisons then, including reports written by the Department of Corrections, that there's an increase in instability. Prisoners are rioting more often. There's a huge increase in stabbings amongst prisoners. And I believe that that is evidence and reflects the decline in the effectiveness of that individual-based, reputation-based convict code system. Mm. So the conflict is an indicator of the failure of that system that used to work well. And at the same time Mm. is when we see the emergence of gangs. And again, based on uh, the eyewitness accounts of residents and workers at prisons, um, they all agree that gangs initially form because they feel unsafe in an increasingly volatile environment, right? These gangs all initially form Mm. um, for self-protection. And once they form for self-protection, it eventually evolves into meaning that they also have a comparative advantage in engaging in the underground economy in prisons. Because if you are strong enough to protect your members' rights, then you're also strong enough to protect the property that you'd need to sell in the underground economy. Yeah. Yeah, and the, it's interesting the point where this this violence increases, and it seems to be where there's kind of a power vacuum where people aren't really sure who's in control, and so these these new roles get enforced or made larger. And so, what where are where's the authority in this in this position in terms of the the legal authority? Where where's the governance <coughs> from the state at this point? Um, they're there. Um, they're watching. Um, sometimes, you know, we can we have evidence that they're concerned about what's happening. And I guess retrospectively, it, it seems like they fumble a bit. They're not sure what to do with mm. these gangs because they hadn't existed before, so they don't have a lot of experience with them. But, you know, I think part of my argument, or at least how I think about it now, is that it may be that when you have prisons full of thousands of people, so at its height, mm. California prisons on average held 5,000 people, It may simply be that prison officials, the way that prisons are organized in America today, simply can't control that many people. It may be that, um, you know, there's no way to uh, suppress the violence and disruption and counterbalancing power in prisons that large. So I don't know Mm. if prison officials failed to stop the rise of gangs and, you know, um, reestablish order or if they simply... That's simply a, something they are not capable of doing. Mm. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it sounds like they formed out of necessity in a lot of ways. It seems like that your argument is going that way. And so would you say that you're trying to rehabilitate the reputation of prison gangs in some way? <laughs> um, prison gangs provide uh, certain benefits to the people uh, that participate in them and associate with them. I don't want to say that, you know, there's plenty of things that are not desirable about prison gangs controlling prisons, right? There are not, um, there are not well-enforced norms of equality. There's not robust systems of accountability. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's the underlying um, um, incentives are to reward power and influence to people with the most willingness to use violence and the most desire for profit. So 
I'm not saying that they're sort of good overall. What I am saying yeah. is that they're a rational response to the needs of people put in a very difficult situation. So part mm. of the uh, sort of incorrect uh, narrative about gangs is, uh, as an economist, I think of it as a supply side narrative. So mm. we have gangs, they say, because we have violent men in prison, or we have gangs because we have street gang members in prison. And um, there's always been violent men in prison, so that can't explain why there weren't gangs earlier. I think that the best way to understand gangs in California is from a demand side perspective, which is that prisoners have a demand for safety in increasingly dangerous prisons. They have a demand mm. for gangs to keep them safe. Prisoners have a demand for a wide range of goods and services that are contraband, so the only way to get is to go to the underground economy. Therefore, they have a demand for gangs to supply and regulate the underground economy. Yeah. Yeah. No, and uh, yeah, maybe I was being a bit cheeky by phrasing the question that way. Well, I mean, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about rehabilitating. Uh, but I, I no, I appreciate it's explanation rather than justifying. Well, the and, 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 and if, you talk to, if you talk to the prisoners, they say, look, gangs cause a lot of problems, but they also solve mm. a lot of problems too. And... Yeah. In the book, yeah. I, I, I think I might have done a better job of this, but I'm, I'm, I'm essentially arguing that if you could snap your fingers or pull a lever and dismantle and remove this gang-based mutual responsibility system, there would be dramatic mm. increases in violence and prisoners would be far off as a result. But that yeah. counterfactual doesn't mean that, you know, they're an unbridled positive or good for prisoners. Mm. It certainly, you know, if we were designing the ideal prison system, this isn't the one that we would come up with. Yeah, sure. But the reality is that they do perform some kind of, um, I don't want to necessarily say service, but there is a role there where there's, it is an avenue for some people to be kept safe. But they're responding to a demand and they yeah. are yeah. helping some prisoners feel safer and mm. they're making access to the underground economy more reliable. Now, the latter is, of course, yeah. not desirable from um, prison officers' perspective. Um, but, I mean, yeah. that's a consistent finding uh, from the mouths of prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. And I wanted to ask you, so this was, you know, this research was mainly focused on California. And obviously, a sec second book we're going to talk about soon expands all over the world. But I wanted to ask you about how, um, how representative California is or the prisons in California is for the rest of the US and and how those gangs uh, are arranged because I know from working in in London prisons the we are we do have gangs there in a, in a different way and they are often arranged by postcode mm -hmm. um, but there are you know you don't necessarily have to join a gang in the way that in some place in the world you have to be part of a gang and it's not necessarily uh, along the lines of ethnicity in the ways of some way or religion or where you uh, which favela you've born in, for example, in, in Brazil is still very gang-based, but it's a very particular way it's organized. So my question is twofold. How representative is California to the rest of the US? And um, also, how would you say they are arranged in terms of gangs across the US? Yeah. So, I mean, in many ways, it's very unrepresentative. Um, and so, you know, I think that the prison gang problem is perhaps the worst in California out of all of the state prison systems. And there are many uh, states um, 
where it's nothing like that. And, um, mm. you know, although I haven't done a sort of within U.S. variation analysis, uh, my sort of anecdotal observations are that the small prison systems have the least serious gang problems, presumably because they can rely on, you know, these reputation-based mechanisms. Mm. And I don't think it's random mm. that California and Texas, the two biggest state prison populations, also have the most significant prison gang um, presence. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And, and thinking then about expanding even further than the U.S., I mean, what, what made you move from looking at California to then starting to think about some of the other places? Well, um, about 12 years ago, uh, when I was in grad school, I started doing hmm. a little bit of research on Latin American prisons. And uh, I was fascinated with how it looked very different from prisons in California. And I started wondering, hmm. um, what, is, what would a sort of comparative institutional analysis of prisons look like? And so I found two prisons, one in Latin America, one in the United States during the American Civil War, where both facilities, officials essentially provided no resources, no competent administration, and either low quality or simply no official governance. And so I started mm -hmm. thinking about how would you compare across prisons from many different places and times. Um, and that led me, um, that was a sort of that was my initial thinking about it, and it was sort of too difficult for me to figure out how to do. And so I focused on this California case. But after I published that book, I, I sort of went back to wanting to know these bigger comparative questions. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I essentially um, wanted to understand, um, you know, is California totally different from every other place? And can mm -hmm. we compare across um, different countries over different time periods? And my training in economics, in comparative institutional analysis, and my work now in political science and comparative politics, um, we regularly compare institutions across countries. We look at, um, mm -hmm. you know, what does democracy look like in the United States and Latin America and Europe? And there's a long research tradition saying that you can and should compare across countries. Um, so I, I guess about six years ago, I sort of decided to see if I could compare prisons across countries. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. And so then we have this new book, which will be out this summer. Do you have a date for it? Um, for the publisher release? says that they will be shipping copies on July 1st. Okay, great. Yeah. So I think by the time this goes out, they will be up and, and ready to, to fly off the shelves or the warehouse floors. Um, great. And so, yeah, I think let's get into the new book. So you have three sections, the last one being the conclusion, but the first two are more about uh, who governs. So division of who governs, whether it's the prisoners, whether it's the, the prison authorities themselves, or in one case, you give an example of where nobody's governing at all. Mm -hmm. And then the second section is about how prisoners do govern. Um, and so, what? yeah, I wondered if... I mean, how, how, are you, how are you framing the book when people ask you about well, it? Well, the main question is, why does prison social order vary around the world? And I mm. think this is an important question to ask. Um, if you go back to Sykes' classic book on the society of captives, he sort of mm -hmm. suggests that the social system, the social life of prisons is essentially the same everywhere. And, you know, for those of us who study prisons, we, of course, know that's not true. 
But there is a sense mm. in which prisons are fundamentally similar places, either by definition or practice, regardless of where they look. And I think that's true of four important respects. The first is that there's a selection effect in that the people in prisons are not chosen randomly. They've been charged with or convicted mm. of a crime. The second is that there's a selection bias, that they tend to come from disproportionately disadvantaged socioeconomic and minority communities. The third is that when incarcerated, many prisoners, maybe most prisoners, don't have a choice over who they interact with, right? You don't get to choose who you're associating with. And finally, there are no exit options voluntarily available for most mm. prisoners, right? So those four characteristics are essentially the same in all prisons, and they're important characteristics. They, they sort of define who you live with and what the day-to-day -day is like. They also are mm. the sorts of things that from a social science perspective, we tend to think determine whether interactions are mutually beneficial, positive some, or whether they're negative, um, you know, undesirable outcomes. So, you know, that matters. And so what that tells me is that mm. um, we should be comparing across these because they share some fundamental characteristics. Now, the puzzle of the puzzle of prison order is to me, mm. if they are so similar in these key ways, why is the informal life of prison so different? In some places, prisoners work in solidarity and exert a tremendous influence on the everyday life of prisoners. Sometimes they form these gangs with rigid hierarchies, with elections, with written rules and constitutions. In other prisons, there's no solidarity. There's very few um, centralized organizations and operations. So given that prisons are so fundamentally similar in these key ways, why is the informal life so different? So that's sort of what the book is sort of trying to think mm. about and tease out. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting how you started with a comparison with Charles Darwin's ideas around evolution and adaptation to environment. And so how do, how do you make this relevant to human adaptation? To yeah. in, the, in the popular telling of um, Darwin's sort of discovery of the idea of evolution is that he's looking at the, the beaks of finches in the Galapagos Islands. And these beaks look very different. Some are larger, some are smaller, some are wider, some are thinner, weaker, stronger. They vary in a lot of different ways. And his mm. genius was to recognize that they vary because in order to be successful, these beaks need to have different characteristics depending on the specific ecology that existed on a particular island in the Galapagos Islands. And so mm -hmm. they're very different, but he's got an explanation for why they different based on the local conditions. The analogy with prisons is that as the book sort of tries to argue, prisons look really very different depending on which ones we look at, but they're responding yeah. like the finches to the same basic need, which is a need for governance. But the way they get that need satisfies varies depending on the local conditions. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess what structure of governance are, are laid as the foundations for the people to go into in the first place. Yep, absolutely. And so a big part of yeah. the answer, the sort of first part of the book, argues essentially that um, if a prison officials provide lots of resources, um, effective administration, and high-quality governance, there's not a lot of incentive for prisoners to spend time, energy, and resources to invest in reproducing those resource and governance efforts. On the other mm -hmm. hand, if prison officials don't provide 
resources, especially basic necessities like food, clean water, healthcare, uh, recreational activities. If officials don't effectively administer a prison or govern it, then there's a scope mm. or an unmet de demand for prisoners to invest in producing that governance and gaining access to those resources. So the sort of basic intuition or argument is that if officials govern a lot, prisoners won't. If officials govern very little, there's an incentive for them to do so. Mm. Yeah, and you go into some, you go into detail about some examples of these uh, these different approaches. And so I know that you you talk about Norway um, when you talk about where there's clear structures of governance provided by an authority. So I wondered if you wanted to mention a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, Norway is um, uh, and the Nordic uh, penal systems generally are very unique and. There's important ethnographic research by Thomas Ulvik and others studying the Norwegian and Nordic prison systems. And what we find there is that compared to uh, the United States and especially compared to many Latin American prison systems, officials provide a lot of resources. They provide quality mm. housing. They provide sufficient and apparently um, you know, enjoyable food to many prisoners. They provide vocational and educational opportunities members of prison staff tend to be very well trained. Their prisons are not overcrowded. They typically have one member of prison staff for every prisoner. So there's an abundance of qualified administrators. There's a substantial mm. resources and effective governance of the prisoner community. Their prisons are also very small, right? On average being fewer than 100 prisoners. So in these environments, we shouldn't expect to see prisoners investing in things in the United States, like organized gangs, one, because they don't have as much demand for additional resources, and two, the conflicts that may arise in social interactions because of the small prisons and the high quality of official governance means that they can sort of adjudicate conflicts uh, through informal mechanisms, through these reputation mechanisms, gossip and ostracism. So we shouldn't expect to yeah. see um, anything like the extra legal governance that we see in California, Brazil, or Bolivia in most Nordic prison systems. Yeah, yeah, and of, of course the context is is completely different in um, in countries like Norway, where there's more embracing of welfare um, in politics, and there's there's huge differences. So, but of course, very interesting to see those differences, and so you you contrast that quite starkly with. A, Bolivia and Brazil. So I wondered if you'd like to yeah. mention that. I mean, so in general, prisons in Latin America are sort of have few resources and are poorly governed. Um, there's often tremendous overcrowding. They often have very large prisons. The facilities themselves are often in disrepair. The prisoners mm. are uh, often wanting uh, food, uh, clean water. Um, you know, they, they have very little health care. And uh, there's very few prison staff who are actively and effectively um, governing Latin American prisons. There's also are often very dangerous environments. And, you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, sort of open electrical wiring and water to be in close proximity in overcrowded um, uh, housing areas. So these are very mm. um, poorly governed prisons often. And so, you know, I look at the ethnographic literature in Latin American prisons. Sasha Dark has, of course, done some very important work on Brazilian prisons, looking at the co-governing regimes, how prison officials often 
almost delegate or outsource um, much of their governance to prisoner leaders who are often Mm -hmm. elected uh, or appointed by other prisoners and are seen as um, sort of legitimate uh, sources of authority in the prison. Uh, I also focus on an even more extreme example from Bolivia, the San Pedro prison, where prison officials maintain the perimeter of the facility and they provide access to electricity and water and a, a sort of somewhat inferior food source, uh, but in general, don't enter the prison, don't provide resources to uh, prisoners, and don't govern the prison in any substantial or significant way. And what we see in, in this environment is that prisoners do a tremendous amount to govern themselves. There are elected committees that govern local housing units because uh, the, the uh, visitors are allowed to enter the facility with um, frequency. There's a sort of a flourishing economy within the prison where prisoners run businesses that serve uh, other prisoners, um, alleviating the sort of poverty that they're left with from officials. Um, and that there's mm-hmm. even some sort of civil society aspects, I think, would be the best way to think about them, including uh, there's a prisoner parents association in San Pedro. Because in Bolivia, children up to the age of eight are legally allowed to live with an incarcerated parent. Um, In practice, that age limit hasn't been enforced. And so there's somewhere between 200 to 400 children living in the prison. And so um, essentially, prisoners have responded to the state's failure to provide resources and governance uh, by investing Mm -hmm. in finding ways to access resources and to allocate them and finding ways to tailor governance institutions, whether it's governance over housing areas, over markets, or over families, um, to govern in the absence of the state's willingness or ability to govern. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. And, and I mean, I wanted to, well, I think this is a good time to then look at the third example that you give where we've now talked about where the prison authorities govern, where the prisoners themselves have, in this case, created extensive networks to govern themselves. And then the third part that you mention is when no one governs. And this is Andersville prison, a prisoner of war camp, actually. And so you've kindly recorded a clip from your book of this, which I'll I'll play in a second. But before we hear that, um, is there anything about the context of this particular prison you'd like to present before we hear the clip? This is a prison in the middle, of, in the last 15 months of the American Civil War. It's in the South holding Northern soldiers. And, you know, the general context here is that um, the war absolutely ravaged um, the South and they have incredibly few resources. They're nearing the end of defeat in um, the Civil War and they've created a new prisoner of war camp, one that's farther away from the southern capital, and they've shipped um, thousands of prisoners uh, to it. In Latin America, reliance on visits by family and friends and access to external economic activity alleviated some of the poverty that prisoners face. In Andersonville, by contrast, markets and outside assistance were virtually non-existent. People in neighboring towns were not allowed to enter the stockade. Visitors who had a legitimate reason to be at the camp were prohibited from speaking with prisoners unless an officer was present. Since the prisoners came from distant states and enemy territory, their friends and family could not easily visit and offer aid. 
Northrop's diary reports that one prisoner's wife actually arrived at the camp with clothes and provisions for her captive husband, but camp officials turned her away. Some prisoners wrote home and asked family to send care packages, but even when they were sent, they were usually not received until many months later. This is a sharp contrast with the access to the outside observed in many Latin American prisons. Prisoners who have happened to have had money when they were captured were expected to turn it over to the camp's quartermaster, though prisoners often avoided doing so, and the prisoner could draw on his account when making purchases from the camp merchant. The merchant sold a variety of nutritious foods, including cucumbers, watermelons, onions, potatoes, wheat, flour, coffee, sugar, salt, fowl, and seafood. However, few prisoners actually had the money to subsist on this food for a considerable length of time. The merchant charged extremely high prices, in part because of the exorbitant cost that he had to pay to local farmers and bakers. As a result, money and other valuable items soon emptied from the stockade. Once a prisoner exhausted his resources, he had few ways of earning additional income. So for most prisoners, impoverished and starving, market exchange was not a genuine source of aid. Trading with guards was a violation of the prison's rules, though guards and prisoners sometimes did so. At times, for example, General Wirtz halted wood collection, quote, owing to too great an intimacy which sprung up between the prisoners and their guard, the exchanging of clothes, and etc. Prisoners sometimes crossed the deadline to trade with guards at night. Some guards were able to bring food from neighboring towns to sell to prisoners. Nevertheless, there were relatively few guards, and they themselves had limited means. As in most incarceration settings, camp prohibitions on prisoner-to-prisoner trading cannot squelch the activity. One prisoner describes economic activity in the prison, noting that North Street, an area of the stockade, teemed with part and full-time peddlers, hawking rough cornmeal, pones, and an assortment of edibles. Another man writes, It reminds me of Chatham Street, New York. It is quite crowded, and the cries of the peddlers are incessantly heard. Who wants the wood? Where's the lucky man who will buy the tobacco? Here goes a bully dress coat, only $4. Here's your good sarsaparilla beer, only 10 cents per glass. Who wants the eggs? Only 25 cents apiece. Come and get your mustard and soda. Here's your potatoes and squashes. The stockade was home to several barbers, dentists, and a doctor as well. There were, in fact, watchmakers, tailors, and cobblers too. While some artisans and merchants fared well enough, the prisoner economy did little for most prisoners in offsetting the deprivations they faced. There were simply not enough of the needed supplies available inside of the stockade, and most prisoners could not afford the staggeringly high prices demanded by the merchant and other sellers. Unlike San Pedro prison, there were few opportunities for prisoners to engage in productive activity. Likewise, outsiders rarely entered the facility, and officials certainly did not allow them to trade openly with prisoners. Two common ways of trafficking contraband into prisons today, during visits with family and friends and work details outside of the prison, were not available to most men in Andersonville. These prisoners lived in an isolated economy, and economic activity never developed to a significant extent. Okay, thank you for that. It's really interesting to have such a detailed account of, of that specific experience. And um, yeah, lots of questions for you. But first of all, obviously this is a context around a prison that was a fair while in the past now. So when you were putting your book together, did you feel any conflict in sort of comparing contemporary prisons with American Civil War era prisons? I think when you're doing a comparative analysis, um, there's obviously going to be differences in 
the, 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 the most important thing then is to find out, are they similar enough on the things that are important relative to the theory that you're trying to test or understand? And for me, yeah. uh, in studying Andersonville, it became very clear that there are similar to um, prisons uh, today in those sort of four key aspects that I described earlier. Um, and mm. in many ways, they're very similar to San Pedro prison. It's, of course, a different time period. It's a different country. People are in the facility for different reasons. But just like uh, San Pedro prison in Bolivia, the Andersonville prison, officials are providing essentially no resources other than in a minimal amount of food on a daily or every two to three day basis. There are no mm. guards in the facility at Andersonville like San Pedro. And they're not providing any governance of social or economic activity generally. And so in my theory of mm. sort of extra legal governance, um, that's a good match, even though it's different in lots of other ways. Mm. Yeah. So in some ways, you feel like it, it strengthened your theory in that it not only over different locations, spatially, it works over different locations. Yeah, in, that's right. Yeah, well. I mean, in, in, I guess, generally speaking, if a theory can explain not just contemporary comparisons, but historical mm. ones, then it should mm. provide more valuable uh, explanatory power. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting what you're talking about in, in, this, in this clip we've just heard. It sounds like there were genuine attempts to create order within prisons and the prisoners, um, you know, they, they created groups within themselves and even tried to create relationship with staff in terms of buying and selling things. But these seems to have been purposely stopped in some ways by, by authorities. I thought that was interesting how they were kind of prevented from developing. Well, I think that they were, um, the prison officials at Andersonville had an incentive to um, limit their control. So this prison at one point mm. held 30,000 people, far more than the number of staff who are there. And so they were concerned that there would be a riot big enough for 30,000 people to escape and, um, you know, if not only flee, you know, rejoin a fight or, you know, attack local uh, communities. But hmm. I think even more important than that was that just the, the economic resources, the, the valuable resources that existed in the prison, they just evaporated so quickly. You know, nobody was wealthy in that prison for their entire experience there. There was no value in the ground. You know, there wasn't um, sort of um, crops available to uh, consume. Mm. There, there wasn't wood to build things with. It, it was, you know, more or less simply a dirt field. So, you know, even if there's food available at, for today, you know, there's not gonna be food available every day for the next year. And so the valuable resources that were there were very quickly um, uh, consumed and, you know, no longer available. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And each of these aspects, it seems that people are trying to create order where there's, there's not or trying to make adaptations for survival. <clears throat> and this, the, the next part of your book is specifically looking at how do prisoners govern? And so, again, you've broken up to, to three sections and uh, just to briefly mention those. So the, the three sections are small populations. That's looking at women's prisons in California. There's social networks in England and then also a section on social distance. And that's with the gay and trans transgender unit um, in L.A. And so I wondered I'd give you free reign at which any of those that you'd like to 
to mention? Uh, sure. Um, well, and, and to sort of make a sort of methodological point here, um, mm-hmm. I, those three prison systems, I think, provide a quality of official governance that's much more similar than the first three cases that I look at. And okay. those are much more similar. And there's a reason for trying to choose them in them being much more similar, which is that if you're holding those, the quality of official governance constant, that makes it easier to observe how other variables matter. And so mm-hmm. in that section, I'm trying to understand in how, how, do, how do reputation-based governance mechanisms work across these different cases. So in yeah. re- reference to the first book, as we discussed earlier, um, if your reputation matters and that can be used to ensure good behavior through sh- shaming, gossip, and ostracism, then prisoners aren't going to invest in the sort of centralized groups like those that exist in California. And so um, small prisons make reputations work better. That's the argument on women's prisons. Um, Maybe I'll talk a little bit about uh, social networks. So um, in England and Wales, the prison system that operates there, um, it seems that social networks are very important for facilitating a reputation-based governance mechanism. And I would recommend everyone to read Ben Crew's uh, very important uh, book and articles on this topic. But it's a, a regular yeah. finding that postcodes and postcode pride are a sort of focal point for social interactions. And I argue that this sort of dense social networks makes reputation mechanisms more powerful. So not only are English prisons relatively small by comparison to California, but they're also cited close to a person's home community. And since at least the Wolf Report in the early 1990s, prison officials have um, aimed to incarcerate people in facilities cited close to home. Now, they do that, I believe, to uh, try to allow people to maintain healthy ties with friends and family. Uh, But there's an additional Mm. effect, which is that when you arrive at a prison, it's likely that there are other people from your hometown, from a housing estate, from your postcode, who are already there. And if that's the case, uh, they already know your reputation and you already know their reputation. So you don't even have to establish your standing and reputation. It may be known immediately. In addition, while incarcerated, um, it may be that the people you know from your postcode or your hometown uh, are talking with people back home out on the streets about how you're behaving. There's a, the, the audience that can exist to shame you is larger because of these sort of dense ties to the local community. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when a prisoner leaves, it's very likely that other people whom he is incarcerated with, uh, he will see on the streets after incarceration. So what that does is it extends the life uh, or the length of the relationship. And that means that maintaining the quality of the relationship is more important, which means prisoners are more sensitive to maintaining a good reputation and following the norms and codes that prisoners see, um, you know, sort of upstanding prisoners to follow. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so the form of governance is very much linked again to the, to the, the climate and the, the context of of the social networks that can be both small in the prison but ex- expand to that's right and the local community and, and I think that helps explain why the sort of community responsibility system uh, centered around gangs in California isn't replicated in the English context 
Um, mm. you know, and, and they're not entrenched. It, not everyone has to join a gang. The sort of affiliations on postcode, uh, tend to be, you know, fewer than 10 people often. They're not permanent. There's not a lifetime commitment like there is for many gangs in California. And they're also overlapping, right? You can be affiliated with several different cliques or groups. And this social system that exists today in England and Wales looks a lot like the California prison system, which was also based on loose cliques and affiliations before gangs existed. So, mm. you know, part of the reason that this system is able to operate, you know, so well in England and Wales is because there's about 100 more correctional facilities than there are in California. So California incarcerates more than 100,000 people today. I believe in England and Wales, it's you know just a little north of 80,000 people. Uh, but mm. they have 100 more prisons than California, and they're spread out through a geographic region that is about a third the size of California. That's why you're able to have mm. prisons so close to home for so many people. Yeah. Although I have to say, I know the government are planning larger prisons throughout England and Wales that are, they're trying to put thousands of people together. So crystal ball time, would you expect if that was the trend to increase the size of prisons um, in more remote locations, would you imagine that there's a chance then that, that gangs would, um, would form um, yeah. to, to, to fill yeah, up? That, I mean, that that's absolutely yeah. what I would predict is if you, yeah radically reduce the number of prisons, increase their size substantially, and take them away from um, home communities. Um, that, that's exactly what I predict. I hope that the government doesn't do it. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the problem is that there's a lot of reasons why, from an operational perspective, it seems cheaper to have a few large prisons. Mm. The logic is that there are economies of scale so that it's cheaper per prisoner to have big prisons because you only have to build, you know, one cafeteria that serves 3,000 people instead of, you know, 10 cafeterias that serve far fewer people. Uh, but the problem yes. with that sort of calculus and that logic is that it doesn't account for the other costs that r arise because of the increase in the prison population. So, for example, mm -hmm. if gangs do become, um, you know, important, influential, and entrenched in the prison system there, that's a huge cost. It reduces recidivism. It reduces the ability for officials to govern. It re reduces uh, rehabilitation. Um, all of those costs need to be anticipated and incorporated into this logic of economies of scale because what you save on cafeteria costs you may reap in social and other costs in the future. Yeah. Well, I completely agree with you. <laughs> well, I hope the I hope the British government listened to this podcast <laughs> and agree with you too. Um, I have to keep our fingers crossed Indeed. for that. Um, now, I, I, I really want to ask you about that the third section, which is uh, about the gay and transgender unit in the in Cal in California as well. Yeah, it's in Los Angeles County. And, um, yeah, yeah. So this is this is still a, a very controversial topic in terms of how best to serve transgender communities, gay communities in in prison, and how to keep everybody safe, but not to force people into spaces where they're at risk themselves. And so, um, yeah, I think this is a very interesting. Uh, well, I was going to say experiment, but it is happen. It's it's happened, and it's uh, they've been. There's been a version in New York that didn't work so well. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about both of those uh, examples of sure. 
a transgender I mean, unit. So, so the concern um, is that, and, and, and we, we observe that um, gay and transgender prisoners in general population housing areas are uh, often subject to um, high levels of victimization from other prisoners. And in yeah. response to that concern, a few localities have segregated or attempted to segregate gay and transgender prisoners uh, for their safety. In New York, um, I believe it was just a, a, a transgender housing um, air segregation. It wasn't fully segregated. It was just sort of, uh, you know, in a variety of ways, more segregated or somewhat segregated from the general population. Uh, but what they found mm. is that um, non-transgender prisoners would um, find ways to be housed there so that they could victimize the people who were being housed there. And so in that, in that yeah. respect, it, it was a, a, you know, sort of a significant failure. In Los Angeles County Jail, they, uh, in response to um, a lawsuit in the 1990s, um, created uh, this gay and transgender housing unit. And out of concern of, for what happened in New York, they have what is in many ways a very controversial process to determine who is housed in the gay and transgender unit. And the heart of it mm -hmm. is that there's an interview with two deputies who ask fairly probing and at times provocative and certainly not politically yeah. correct questions to try to figure out, quote, who's really, end quote, uh, gay. And mm. as a result of that, um, many um, as a result of that, the, the, the composition of prisoners in that unit are very different from who lives in the general population area. And so this is why this, so this controversial sorting process, I argue leads to a, a community where there's uh, very low social distance. And this is not the sort of public health social distance. This is a, a term often used in sociology. It's used in slightly different ways across disciplines, but the way that I use mm. it is trying to understand how similar people are in terms of their worldview, their culture, mm. their lived experience, their tastes and preferences. So, you know, how much do they, how similar are they on that? And I argue mm. that they're similar because of this controversial process. It sorts people in who have lived um, a life that's not universally lived in the gay community, but is actually conforms with sort of often biased stereotypes of the gay community. But they're people with similar yeah. backgrounds who face similar challenges, who outside of prison often attend um, similar uh, bars and restaurants. And um, many of them know each other from prior to incarceration. So I say that this is a sort of low social distance environment. Um, in the general population, people are much, much more different in their worldviews, um, cultures, lived experiences. And that's, that yeah. low social distance in the housing unit um, should facilitate sort of decentralized reputation-based mechanisms. Mm. And just to, so we're clear for the people who haven't yet read the book, and um, when we're talking about these screening mechanisms that were controversial, um, there's, they've been sometimes asked questions like, tell me about your first sexual experience with a man. Um, so that's, that could be a very it could be triggering for somebody to, to have to disclose that in um in post-conscience i mean i'm not sure many people want to have that kind of conversation with a stranger anyway at any point yeah but that's absolutely right and i 
didn't include the most um, problematic questions in the book because mm. um, they were simply you know too graphic. Um, so right. okay. um, you know, so so there's sort of two important um, scholars who have worked on this. Sharon Dolovich has written a series of papers that uh, are very uh, detailed, excellent. Uh, Russell Robinson uh, is also written on this topic. And um, they disagree fundamentally on the normative value and, and many of the normative issues involved um, with this controversial process. Um, and, mm. you know, I, I think Professor Dolovich makes a very strong argument that in a world with very with a few very bad options, that this is better than the alternatives, uh, despite mm. um, all of these concerns that I think we genuinely have and that she recognizes. And in the wider criminal justice community within California, has it been received as a, as a positive uh, program that's been implemented, uh, or have there, or has it been the controversy controversy that's been sort of highlighted? No, I mean there's not there's not um, extensive implementation or reproduction of this at other jails or prisons mm -hmm. to any substantial extent that I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm just I'm just interested. It's, it's so difficult to. Um, to think about what's right, I, this, the restrictions are so difficult to navigate. Um, so yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people interested to see how um, how this unit progresses. Even though, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think the the screening mecha mechanism sounds particularly problematic. Yeah, and you know, um, I, mean, I, but I can see why they would want to try and prevent what happened in. Yeah, Europe. and um, you know, I I generally think that prisons are often a very blunt tool. And they can't be hmm. used in very nuanced ways. And, you know, this is just another example of that. You know, and I, I tend to think that, yeah. you know, I think of that often in terms of rehabilitation. You know, can a blunt tool accomplish rehabilitation for many different people with many different histories and situations? And, you know, hmm. likewise here, it's a blunt tool and it's giving us outcomes that, you know, we aren't very excited about. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's a nice way to start thinking about outcomes that you hope for your book. And um, when you when you set out to write it, what were you hoping that you would be able to achieve with the results of it? What are you hoping to put out in the world and, and gain in terms of impact with this book? Well, I mean, the audience is, you know, uh, naturally uh, for uh, academics and uh, scholars interested in prisons. I try to write uh, both of the books that I've done in an accessible way, so not mm -hmm. as much jargon so that, you know, I'd like there to be more interdisciplinary engagement on questions of prisons. And mm. um, I think in order from, you know, some, from, a few, from a few perspectives, so I, I think to understand mass incarceration, we can't just look at America and the United States. We need to look at it in a comparative perspective. And that does a few things. It, it highlights just how different um, prisons are in the United States than in many, many other places. Uh, but it also mm. shows, I think, that there's some fundamental um, core of incarceration, of punishment through incarceration. And if you believe that the sort of core nature of incarceration um, is unjust, then it's not just the American prisons that are unjust. It may be very, very many more of them. Um, but this mm. is a this is an academic contribution that... Um, you know, it, that, that I hope changes the way that we study prisons and that we would do yeah. so from a more comparative perspective. 
there's sort of two methodological arguments that I make in the book. So I'm making a theoretical and empirical argument, but um, one is to start from the observation that the vast majority of prison studies are single site or are of sites in a single prison system. And so mm. I believe that this sort of comparative analysis is productive. I, I hope the book, you know, is evidence of that. But even if my book isn't, yeah. somebody else should do a better, you know, a different comparative analysis. Mm. Um, the second is a methodological argument to prison scholars that these individual ethnographic studies, which are already incredibly valuable in their own right, um, have even more value to provide that we can use single site studies as evidence in a broader comparative analysis. And in thinking about prison studies like that, um, it makes this a more collaborative um, intellectual project, right? So in mm. a study in England, a study in Bolivia, a study in Brazil, a study in Kansas, isn't just, quote, just a study in those places. It's contributing yeah. to a broader understanding of variation in punishment and incarceration around the world. And, you know, I think that's inherently valuable. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, just a minute ago, you touched on how, you know, it kind of depends on the philosophy of the prison and justice and, and what you want to achieve with it in the first place. And so I thought it might be a good chance to ask you about your thoughts on the current or uh, the current thoughts about defunding prisons that's been in the news a lot at the moment. And I know that you've just mentioned that you've been reading up on it. So, and perhaps your, your thoughts aren't completed on it, but it'd be interesting to know what, what you think of it at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've thought actually more about defunding the police, um, lately. Mm, and, okay. yeah. um, I think that, I think that all sorts of reforms and abolition should be on the table intellectually. And I think it's important to mm. note that both, uh, prison abolitionists and people who want to abolish the police, I don't think any of them want to pull a switch tomorrow and eliminate them entirely, right? So I think that things yeah. are more gradual and nuanced than thoughtful than maybe the first impression can give. The way that I've been thinking mm -hmm. about the police is um, in three ways, is that we should make major changes in, in uh, debundling, demilitarizing, and diversifying uh, policing. Okay. And so if I can just say a little bit about each of those... Yeah, great. Debundling is, I think that we need to assess what we use police for. And there are many social problems that police are first responders for that you don't need an armed uh, law enforcement officer um, to address. Homelessness, hmm. mental health issues, um, um, substance use disorder, and, you know, people who are you know, passed out drunk, you know, don't necessarily need an armed officer to be the first person to show up for that. So we should debundle yeah. some of these uh, some of these activities that we give to them from things that we may think are more necessary to have an armed uh, respondent to. The second is mm -hmm. that in the United States, um, the police are often an extractive institution on their citizens. It's their job to fund local governments through citations and misdemeanor arrests that generate fines and fees that go into public budgets. And in some places, that represents a very huge amount of the budget. And it influences a large proportion of households in the city. Uh, that's not the appropriate role for an armed police staff to be the sort of local extractor of resources. Likewise, mm. police often are able to rely on civil asset forfeiture laws where they can take someone's car, take someone's money, even without proof of guilt. And that goes into local budgets and often local police budgets. 
Both of these things create the absolute wrong incentive for a healthy, respectful, democratic policing. And they should be debundled and in the case of local extraction and civil asset forfeiture, absolutely eliminated from uh, local policing. The second is mm. demilitarize. Um, there are a variety of often federal programs that funnel military-grade weapons to local police departments that provide the ability to engage in serious acts of violence against their citizens. Um, and they do so without uh, significant training. So you're taking um, very powerful um, weapons that we give to train military officers and then giving them mm -hmm. to people who haven't received that same military training. Second, yeah. the ethos uh, associated with local policing, uh, the culture of policing, I believe becomes more uh, confrontational um, when it's associated with this you know, sort of weaponry. Uh, and then finally, mm. um, the law that we impose on military's use of these weapons is often not in existence in, in local communities. So we're taking these very powerful tools that rightly so we constrain very tightly in military activity and we give them to local people without any of those constraints. And I think that's deeply problematic mm. and unnecessary. And I think it gives rise mm. to... Uh, the sort of warrior cop mentality um, that leads to them killing about a thousand people per year. And then finally, mm -hmm. um, diversify police departments with more women and people of color as officers. And studies have shown that citizens feel more respected and that the police are more fair, the more diverse they are. And it also appears to correlate with other positive outcomes um, in policing. So at the moment, that's sort of my thought. Radical debundling, significant demilitarization and uh, strong diversification. Well, wow. when you said you'd had a, a few thoughts on it, I wasn't expecting, <laughs> yeah, quite such an eloquent and uh, put together set of thoughts. So yeah, thank you for that. It's, it's I think it's a really interesting, um, yeah, pathway that a lot of people are taking at the moment. And I know some people immediately bump up against it because the, the logic most people take into that situation is that, well, the, surely the more resources we give to the police, the better they'll be able to, to work. Yeah, well, and, um, and, you know, I mean, I, I do believe, I mean, so the, I, the most, I think, sophisticated, rigorous studies in economics show that if you increase the number of police on patrol, there is a substantial drop in property and violent crime. So my argument is that we need to get police focused on doing what we want them to be doing instead of serving mm. as an extractive institution. So we should debundle and then increase the number of people who are policing, but they're policing in the way that we want to. You know, this is underlying the yeah. observation that many communities in the United States are both over-policed and under-policed. They're over-policed mm. through stop and frisk and fines and fees. And they're under police and there's not enough people deterring crime and pursuing um, uh, investigating crime. So the United States incarcerates yeah. something like 35% fewer police officers per capita to sort of similar uh, other countries and uh, obviously mm -hmm. significantly more prison officers uh, than other countries. And both of those things, you know, should, should be switched. Yeah. So, and the, it's interesting when you talk about policing strategies because it, different groups are, have different policing strategies used with them as well. And I think, um, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, it's, it seems like what we need is a, a real fundamental rethinking of what we want police to do and who and how. Yep. 
<laughs> those really should be doing it. Yep, so, absolutely. Yeah, and right from the base I, up. I don't know what, what the sort of international view of things in the United States is right now, but um, mm. it, it seems very unprecedented to me um, in terms of the frequency of protests, but the the number of communities who are protesting. I mean, it's not just New York City. Um, you know, we're having huge protests here in, in Providence and local towns. Uh, everyone's coming out and um, demonstrating for this. So, you know, more than I've ever seen, this is an opportunity for real substantive change. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, um, you know, it, it was, was sparked, obviously, with George Floyd in the US, but we've had huge protests here in the UK as well. And I can speak to uh, experience in London in that people are genuinely thinking about how we, how we police and, and how we fund. And it's interesting because the US now, with globalization, US culture has become world culture in, in many Western uh, spaces. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, something that happened in one place is, is really sparking a huge uh, ripple effects elsewhere. Yeah. And it does seem, you know, for, for us that have worked in these areas for quite a while, it does feel a little bit different to, compared mm -hmm. to before. And more people seem to be drawn into the conversation that would normally sort of pass over it. And so, yeah, it's still a lot of talk now, but hopefully that is going to pass in, into action. And everybody keeps saying that at the moment. So uh, let, let's, let's hope that that's, that is what yeah, happens. Absolutely. I think uh, we could easily end up doing a whole other podcast on, on those issues. So I'm going to try and stick, stick back to your book because that's what we're talking about at the moment. And if you were able to have a room full of people and it was just we could put any 50 people in that room to talk about your book, what would you, who would you be putting in that space and what would you be saying to them? It's um, a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think that... Um, you know, correct. Well, so it sounds like someone from the prison service in, in England and Wales should be there if they're considering bigger prisons. Hmm. Um, you know, prisons are very much state based in the United States. So I would hmm. look at what are the most, from my perspective, problematic state prison systems and bring in um, the directors of those groups. And um, I would probably bring in um, sort of you know, members from groups like the Marshall Project, which is a group of criminal justice oriented uh, journalists. Mm. Um, so people working and writing in the sort of public eye about policing uh, or excuse me, at prisons, um, you know, people who can communicate and frame these issues in a way that's compelling and to communicate with policymakers who have some influence over what's going on. And then, of course, I guess mm. you'd have to have some legislatures, right? So prison budgets are determined by state governments. And a lot of the things that I think are necessary to make prisons more effective in humane places requires more funding. Um, and so, I mean, I guess the message is that, um, you know, um, smaller prisons are safer. They're more rehabilitative. They're easier for staff to govern. So it's easier to uh, recruit and maintain um, uh, a, a, an effective, experienced prison staff. And that, mm -hmm. you know, if prisons are the tool of punishment that we're going to use, there's some basic demand that they be legitimate, just, and effective institutions. And in many places in the United States, 
and Latin America and you know across the world really um, were failing to live up to I think that minimal demand. I mean, do you think that you will get a chance to have those kind of conversations? Um, I, I would always welcome them to. Um, when my first mm. book came out, I, I you know sent it to different um, powerful people that I thought you know maybe on a whim they'd get they'd have a look at it. Um, and mm. you know I'm, I've, I've heard nothing, and you know I don't consider myself to be a very good sort of activist or public policy um, advocate. And um, anyway, so I'm, I'm, maybe I'm hoping that, you know, other people who have better skills in that respect um, would take it and affect some positive social change. Mm. Well, yeah, and, and on that, I mean, what I'm really interested in is getting people to, to work across different disciplines and, um, you know, prison officers, academics, NGOs, all different policy advocates. How have you found that experience? You know, I, I guess you've just said it's, it's difficult to know how much impact you have when you when working as an academic. But do you feel, is there anything that you've experienced that you've thought's worked really well before or you've reflected on that you think we should be doing more of in the future so that we can see greater levels of impact? Um, well, I mean, I mean, I guess in a sense, I've, I've been a complete failure in that respect. So, I mean, when my <laughs> first book came out, I, you know, pitched a large number of op-eds and wrote some and, and they mostly fell flat or didn't have much uh, of an effect. But, but I'm, I also, you know, I, I, I also sort of draw, you know, some um, line between how much I want to, you know, sort of be a producer of research and how much I want to be a pusher mm. of policy change. And, mm. you know, again, just sort of individually self-assessment, I think I'm more equipped for the former than the latter. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't had much success and I'm, it's not clear... Um, that, that, that's sort of the ideal role for me, uh, as opposed to maybe somebody who's um, sort of more adept in those types of conversations. Well, I mean, maybe I'll challenge you a little bit on that in the, you know, I've, I've read the response to, to your book and, you know, there's some big names on, on the cover giving huge compliments to you for that. And uh, I've, I've heard them myself. So I, I, I I don't know. I'm not happy with you <laughs> saying that it's a failure, but I no. But I think it's interesting. You know, not everybody has to do every single role, and it sounds like you feel like your place is doing that that core research, and there'll be somebody else who's is a is amazing at flying on the comms of things and translating things into yeah. um, you know different narratives no, and I'm stuff. Not, and so I yeah. absolutely hope that it, no, it can can affect. I think yeah. it should, and you yeah. know, I, I hope it does. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, if you know what or how that you know how that happens. Well, I mean, I'm very grateful that you sent me the early edition of this book before it gets released, and I've really enjoyed reading it. And so I definitely encourage other people to to read it. And it's um, yeah, I, the name again is the Puzzle of Prison Order: Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. So yeah, I would encourage people interested in any of the topics we've we've discussed today to to check that out. Yeah, and let's make it okay. <laughs> a big success. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks for listening. And thank you so much to everyone who has been sharing the podcast with friends and students that you think have been able to benefit from it. We now have listeners in 62 countries. And all I can say is thank you so much for all the great feedback. And just to say, please keep sharing it so that we can spread the positive message of all these brilliant guests as far as possible. All right, see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.